Um, I think we'll get started here now that we have the official technological capacities with the internet and the recorder going. Um, so thanks for everybody coming out to this afternoon session. Uh, as advertised in the program, it is a book launch at the Historical Materialism Conference for Marks at the Arcade, which is not even yet published, but you can get here uh, available at the, the tables out front. Um, and so we have Jimmy Woodcock, who wrote, wrote the book, who's going to be speaking about it, and uh, Mohini, mm -hmm. who is a games worker. Um, as our panel, so we'll have them do their their thing and then open up for a conversation and discussion. So, take it away. Sure, um, I can start. Um, so, as um, as was mentioned, my name is Mohini. Um, my last name is Tata. I was one of the founding members of Game Workers Unite, which is a pro-union organization that we started last year. So a little bit about Game Workers Unite, and then I'll let Jenny um, talk about the book, which we're all here for. Um, so Game Workers Unite started, like many things in the games industry, by a group of people being angry on Twitter. And <laughs> unlike how that story normally ends, uh, this ended with a positive thing, which was uh, we decided to come together and do something about our anger. Why were we angry? Because um, we found out that GDC, which is the Game Developers Conference, uh, one of our biggest professional events in the US, they were going to have a um, roundtable to discuss why unions were a bad thing for games as an industry. It was beautiful, yeah. Um, it was by the IGDA, which is our only other recognized professional entity, which has the words, we are not a union, on every page on the website. <laughs> So I mean, yeah, sure, we get it, like you're not into this thing. So <laughs> it's just like, we didn't expect the IGDA to be a union at any point, but the fact that they were actively pushing against unionizing was what pissed everyone off. And after a lot of like angry tweets back and forth, we decided to form a Twitter group, as many of these things go. And then that group kept growing and growing and growing. And by the end of the like hour that we had started discussing, there were around 600 people, and like we couldn't hold everyone in that group. So it migrated to a Discord channel where people were still angry and like tried to see what we could do. And then the decision happened like really organically um, to kind of have a direct action. So the plan was to go peacefully and stay there for the roundtable and push back against these like regressive ideas. And that's what we did. We had some support from the SAG AFTRA folks who are the Screen Actors Guild folks, our allies on the West Coast. Um, some folks from IATSE who came by, some people with more organizing experience than us came back to push back against these kind of like ill-formed ideas. And there was just a lot of people in the room just like silently like listening and looking. So these ideas couldn't like just progress the way sometimes these conversations do. And that action ended up having a deep impact. We also managed to organize within a week a kind of grassroots led like um, zine publication campaign to talk about the benefits of unions and well the history of unions and how unions could help um, game workers. But the thing that I'd like to stress is we are not a union by ourselves because we don't support an idea of a large, um, humongous, like homogenous union. So that's why we phrase it as a pro-union advocacy group. We support union building, we support training of organizers, and we support the development of concepts of what is a form of solidarity that works for games. Because as many of you know, games are a very broad field. There's been forms of game design, game studios, game publication, and game industry. So there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution for us. Um, so at this point, we are seeing 
developed interest in unions um, since that last um, GDC. This year at GDC, the situation was completely different. Unions were everywhere. There were lots of like jokes and bits about unions. People had pins saying unionized now all over the place. And that was all because of Game Workers Unite. So we are a horizontal grassroots um, organization led and organized by workers, for, for workers. We, um, we have a lot of people with different maybe political bands, but it's essentially a progressive organization talking about worker solidarity in game design. Um, and this year and last year alone, there's been a lot of interest because um, large game companies like Blizzard and Activision and like EA have been doing terrible things, like laying off like 8% of their staff, which is around 800 people. And while claiming to be making like large profits, this, we could go into the details and the nitty gritty of this. And if you guys are interested, uh, GameWorkersUnite.org is where all of our content is. Um, our zines are up there as well, our pins, our publications, and our suggested reading materials are all up there. So we're here to help take the conversation further, and we're excited to see more work being done. Thank you so much. Um, so thank you so much. I have to say, being based in the UK and then coming to the US, I was slightly worried about finding a game worker who can come and speak. So it's really nice to, to hear the US side of the story. Um, what I want to do is just to introduce the book uh, in, a, in, a, in a couple of ways. Um, and I think hearing about what's happened with GWU is really one of the reasons why I thought it was an important project to do. Um, but I also want to go into a little bit of the background of, uh, of why I wrote the book, um, which is some of my earliest memories of playing video games. Um, my dad is a computer scientist, um, and so when I was a kid, uh, friends of his at work would give him floppy disks, sometimes in the original game packaging, sometimes in an envelope with a name written on it, probably not uh, bought in the original. Um, and I remember, you know, I remember trying to learn to play these games, uh, and I remember this computer in our house with post-it notes all over it, uh, with like instructions of how to load the games, because, you know, and I felt like it had a technical skill to, to figuring out how to play these things. And then obviously, over time, video games have transformed into a, a mass medium. Um, you don't have to write down the instructions of how to play them on a post-it note anymore. You, know, you don't have to have uh, someone who's a computer scientist uh, giving you both legit and potentially illegitimate copies of games in order to play them. They're now one of the biggest media forms and many of the most popular video games are the best-selling cultural commodities today. Um, and so in a sense, why I wanted to write the book originally was to think about this, to think about how Marxism could help us to understand the video games industry, but at the same time, how the video games industry could help us as Marxists understand the world. So how we could apply that analysis to, to make sense of things. And I want to, to read a quote which I both start and end the book with from Stuart Hall. Um, to give a bit of context of why I think this is worthwhile. So Stuart Hall argues that popular culture is one of the sites where the struggle for and against a culture of the powerful is engaged. It's also a state to be won or lost in that struggle. It is the arena of consent and resistance. It is partly where hegemony arises and where it is secured. It is not a sphere where socialism or a socialist culture already fully formed might simply be expressed but it is one of the places where socialism might be constituted. And that is why popular culture matters. Otherwise, Stuart Hall continues, 
to tell you the truth, I don't give a damn about it. Um, which, you know, I also do care about video games as I've grown up playing them. But to think about why they matter and why we want to analyse them is to think about those factors. To think about the role that culture plays uh, within capitalism today. And so the connection with Marxism, um, I don't know if anybody has played the Assassin's Creed set in, in Victorian London. Um, I know you have, Helen. Um, so within this, uh, within this game, um, you play as, in this case, uh, twin assassins rather than a single assassin, uh, and a kind of convoluted plot that goes through time travel and Templars and all, all kinds of things. I'm getting to the point, I promise. Um, is you meet Marx. Uh, you meet a virtual Marx within the game. Uh, and it's a really interesting moment because you meet a whole series of figures and what Marx asks the players to do uh, is to break into a factory and steal reports inside the factory. Um, he says we really need to understand, he actually asks the assassins, you, you know, you've done a lot of good with your assassining, um, <laughs> but who you should really be helping is the working people. And he says I'm an activist too. And I want you to steal these reports to, to shine a light on the, the conditions within factories. Now, this is kind of close to history, but there are obviously some differences. Um, is at the time, Marx was reading factory reports through, through, that were commissioned by Parliament. So he was reading the factory inspector's reports. So he's not having them stolen uh, by assassins. But this is a really interesting moment in Marxism. Is this is Marx, towards the end of his life, thinking about what it means to, to talk about workers' experience and how workers' experience can feed into the project of understanding capitalism. Uh, and so he famously has a, a questionnaire towards the end of his life that he sends out to workers. We're not clear how many responses, or they're never published that he gets to it, but it's a kind of, towards the end of his, his life, a kind of shift in what he's trying to do. Uh, and so in my own research, I try to do something similar, which is to think about how a researcher uh, can talk to workers, can spend time with workers, in some cases can work the same job, uh, and provide uh, support with workers inquiring into their own conditions. Not simply to produce uh, research, mm -hmm. but also to produce organisation. So how can we use these tools, whether it's a questionnaire, interviewing and so on, to think about the process of organisation. Uh, and so in, in 2015, um, I finished one project uh, and I was working with a, a, a bunch of video game developers in, in London and we started to sketch out what the beginning of a workers' inquiry into the video games industry would look like. Um, and it's one of these lovely moments where you, know, you write something and it turns out to be completely, uh, completely wrong. Um, <laughs> where you know, we sketched out the kind of overall dynamics, you know, the, the new kinds of work that were involved in video games production, uh, the growth of various centres in the UK around uh, where games are being made, uh, talk about the profit that's being made uh, from, from commodities in various ways. And then sketched out what could be some workplace issues. Um, and the classic one, which I'm sure people are very familiar with, is crunch. Um, so overwork. So speaking to, to video games developers who, you know, towards the end of a development cycle, might be working 70, 80, 90, uh, in some cases 100 hours a week. Uh, and I want to tell one story from, from one of the workers that are, we've been organising within the UK, who went through this process of crunch, um, and spent something like five or six months in a, a very serious kind of period of crunch time. And the owner of the studio then turned around and said, we've actually decided not to make this game. Um, so you've been working these kind of incredible hours, but we're, 
you know, not convinced it's going to sell enough or, or, or whatever, and we're cancelling the project. And here what you see is somebody who has literally poured their life into a game because they want the game to be good. You know, they have a passion for that game, uh, for the, the product that comes out the other end, but has very little or no control over the, the managerial process, over decisions that are made about it. Um, and in many ways, crunch is a kind of a new version of a very old problem. Um, and one that Marx writes about at length when he talks about the struggle over the working day. Um, it's one of the simplest ways to extract more value from your workers is just to make them work longer. You know? And this was what, why Marx was trying to get access to factory records. is because he was looking at the length of the working day and the struggles over it and so on. Uh, the second part um, is looking at institutional sexism, particularly in the UK, but also questions around diversity. Um, who gets to work in games? What kinds of things do they make? What kinds of characters are featured in games and so on? Um, and so in this article in, in 2015, I kind of said, well, you know, these are two things that people might organize in the future. Uh, we can look at SAG-AFTRA and so on, but like, mm -hmm. there are no immediate signs in the UK that things are happening. Like, kind of watch this space. Um, and then when I was thinking about writing this book, this was when these things were beginning to happen at GDC. And it felt like a nice moment where suddenly resistance was coming above the surface. But what I want to say here is I think there's a risk, uh, particularly for us outside of the industry, of seeing what happened at GDC and going, this is the start of resistance. This is where people suddenly kind of a, a switch flicked and people decided to organize. And I think in reality, we can see resistance going all the way back to the birth of the video games industry. Um, so the very first video games, uh, arguably, were those made on military computers. Um, so people, and in one of the tech panels earlier, people were talking about this. So when people were meant to be, uh, you know, tracing military ballistics uh, patterns, kind of planning mass death and so on, they, they found these new computers that they were getting to use, that they could do something different with them. Um, and they started hacking them and, and using them for other things. And I think at the very birth, therefore, we can see a resistance practice. We can see that people were misusing things at work and so on. And in one of those lovely moments when I was writing the book, uh, I was talking to my dad about this. Um, and he said, oh, I did that when I was younger. Um, when he was training to be a software uh, uh, computer engineer, uh, he was meant to be making calendars with a program. And instead, he and his friends found a way to make a Moonlander game instead. And they mucked about with it, and they had you know, huge fun while they were meant to be doing something completely different. <laughs> and it sounds like an incredibly difficult process. They had to like, you know, find a way, you know, it was like totally not designed to do that. Mm -hmm. But we see those resistance practices right at the very start. And I think arguably the history of the video games industry is one of people resisting, experimenting, finding new ways to create things, and capital then finding a way to package those and sell those on. Um, and so we have a number of booms and busts in the video games industry um, where capital has seen uh, the potential value of, uh, of doing this. Um, but what I want to talk about in particular is a chapter within the book on, on Game Workers Unite. Um, because those same game workers who we sketched out the kind of original ideas around what an inquiry might look like, uh, went to GDC. Uh, one of them got back and he called me and he said, oh my God, you cannot believe what has happened. You need to reach out and talk to these people. Um, and so I emailed uh, and said, you know, I'm a labor academic and you know, I'm happy to offer my help uh, and met up with them. Uh, in the UK, when they were one person. Um, and so this was one person who very similarly had watched GDC and had gone, I would like to do that. 
unions in the video games industry sound great. And so then, from then on, uh, and particularly with uh, some of my comrades from Notes From Below, um, Lydia and Callum, uh, and a, a number of other people, we started to think about how we could support the development of this, this kind of nascent organising. And I want to tell a couple of stories because I think the experience of these young workers organising, I think, is very telling about much more than the video games industry itself. Um, so when we you know, we've hosted the first meeting was, well, one video games worker, then a few, then a couple of dozen, and so on. And the kinds of things that people brought into the meeting to, to discuss um, are hugely revealing. So we had a, a, a young worker who came in who said, you know, the one thing I'm worried about is once I've joined and I have to go and tell my manager that I'm a member of the union, it's going to be difficult for me at work. And we kind of had this thing, what, what do you mean when you go in and tell your manager? And they were like, well, when you join a union, you have to go and tell the boss. And we said, well, where have you got this from? They were like, well, that's just how it is, no. But what I think is most remarkable about that is not saying, you know, this person doesn't understand what a union is, but it's saying this person doesn't understand what a union is, thinks it's that, and still wants to do it. <laughs> it's kind of astonishing. Mm -hmm. Because for most of us joining a union in our workplace, we don't do that. And then for many people, we then don't talk to our colleagues and so on, and we don't actually start building a union. Mm -hmm. Is there was a kind of organic thought about what union organising would mean, and that people were prepared to do it. Um, and in another story, so at the end of this same meeting, somebody came up to me and they said, I like this idea, um, I've never been in a union, this is the first time really hearing about it, uh, and I'm just scared about one thing. I said, okay, what are you scared about? And they said, um, I get it, I join and then I have to argue with other people in my workplace and get them to join. And they were like, I'm really scared of that. Yeah. We said, okay, you know, that's, that's fine. You know, you've never done this before. Mm -hmm. And they said, you know, what can we do? We said, well, we can do some training. Mm -hmm. you know, we can do role play, we can start talking about it. And this person said, I think if we do that, I'm happy to then start talking to my colleagues and organizing at work. Mm -hmm. Now that is a huge leap for somebody to go from never having talked about politics at work to realising that they have to go and start those conversations. But with the help of other people, other trade unionists and other activists, is there's an ability for people outside to support some of those things mm -hmm. and to think about what it, what it means in practice. And the result of this is these workers then chose to join uh, a union called IWGB in the UK. So they're the first of the GWU mm -hmm. international branches to form a union. There is a pre-existing one in France, but mm -hmm. yeah. it's a little bit more complicated. Um, and this is a union uh, that mainly organises precarious workers. Um, so it began organising Latin American cleaners in the universities, uh, Uber drivers, delivery drivers, foster care workers, and so on. And what they saw with this union was an ability to organise, but to organise on their terms. Mm -hmm. uh, not to join a large union and kind of have a paid member of staff take over everything that was happening and so on. But to many of these workers, that made perfect sense. If you organise, why shouldn't it be democratic, participatory? Why shouldn't you get to shape the campaigns? Mm -hmm. And so I think their experience of organising tells us not something very interesting just about the video games industry, mm -hmm. but about the state of labour organising today. That there can be a massive kind of disjunction between, uh, between the two things. Mm -hmm. um, and throughout the book, you know, I chart this kind of story of, uh, of the GW organising in the UK. But there are also two arguments that I make in the book that I want to run over now. Uh, and the first is why Marxists should be interested in video games. Um, and, you know, I'm interested in video games because I grew up playing them, and I think, you know, we should be interested in culture. It's something that we all spend a lot of time doing. But I think there are a number of reasons why we should be particularly interested as the left. 
The first is that the production of video games can tell us a huge amount about contemporary capitalism. That combination of uh, immaterial work in the global north, although increasingly in the global south in various places too, that relies upon material labour, factory labour, logistics, mining. Video games, in a sense, are one of those complex commodities of contemporary capitalism that show us how the web of production has now spread across the whole of the world. Now think about something like GTA V, the most profitable media commodity ever made, was technically made in Edinburgh in the UK. Now of course it wasn't made in Edinburgh, you know, it was made all over the world, in different software studios, relying on hardware from, from all across the world. And so it helps us to show how production has changed through these kinds of commodities. I think it can tell us a lot about resistance. You know, we heard in one of the tech worker panels recently that organized labor has had little interest in organizing within the tech industry mm -hmm. because it said these workers were unorganized, comparatively high wages, mm -hmm. skilled in various ways. But what the GWU comrades have clearly shown is an energy and a passion was there for organizing mm -hmm. and that people needed a kind of uh, a moment mm -hmm. to, to, to think about that. And then I also want to say something about how we can think of games a bit like we can think of science fiction, um, which is another thing that I'm passionate about, is if we think about the role of science fiction with, under capitalism, is it allows us to think about alternatives. It allows us to experiment with alternative futures, alternative ways of being, and so on. And video games offer us a potential to do that. You know, we can explore uh, alternatives in various ways, um, which can also allow us to escape from the drudgery of work you know, for even a short period of time and so on. But if we're to talk about the kind of alternatives that are possible within video games, we also have to see how most of those alternatives at present are not ones of the left. Mm -hmm. um, and that the alt-right has been able to capitalise mm -hmm. on video games culture in a huge way. Um, and there's something written by Steve Bannon, uh, someone unlikely to be quoted at uh, HM, um, talking about this a few years ago. So people might not know, but Steve Bannon ran a, a, a World of Warcraft gold farming company for a while, where he employed people uh, predominantly in the global south to do rope tasks in Warcraft to, uh, to, to get items to then sell to people in the global north. Uh, it's a very unusual thing, uh, but very popular in lots of ways. And it was through this process that he came into contact with um, online video games communities. And as he was developing ideas about how to build the alt-right, he saw the possibilities within video games communities. He said, these are people we can reach. You know, we can radicalize these communities. These are disaffected young men. Um, and so when we see the growth of these communities, and we see how they have become in many ways a kind of cesspit for all right ideas and so on, it's no accident. People have actively organized to do this. And so what I think is most exciting about GWU, and this is why people who are involved in games, I think, can, can take something from Marxism, is we can think about how better kind of online culture could be developed. Because there are so many reasons why a video games culture has developed in this way that it can be very difficult to think about what an intervention could look like to try and fix or to try and improve these things. Mm -hmm. But if we start thinking about what an organized workforce looks like, we can then start to make claims about how these communities are managed and so on. Uh, and I want to give one other example, um, which is we have somebody who organizes with us in the UK who uh, went for a job, got a job at a new studio, uh, and a fan went through their Twitter, a fan of the game, found that they had mentioned feminism, 
and then contacted the company and said, this isn't the kind of person I want making the game that I play. And what the company chose to do was to say, difficulty of dealing with the worker that we have, difficulty dealing with the community, we'll sack the worker. Um, and they just let them go. And I think because they weren't organized, it's easier for the company to say, let's just placate the people who are buying our games. Whereas if that had been an organized workforce, you could see how that would have been a much harder thing to do. And that worker could also make claims about what the company should be doing with its, uh, with its culture. Uh, I also think there's a powerful thing for many people who play video games to see that the industry is organizing. If it shows to people in all manner of low paid or difficult or stressful work who then play video games, if they see that the games that they like are made by organized labor, it shows that organizing is something that people can do too. Um, and then the final point that I want to make, which is, I think often when we think about critique of video games, there is a risk that we see critique as saying all violent games shouldn't exist, or all games with guns shouldn't exist, or difficult themes shouldn't be dealt with, you know, that critique of video games is about sterilizing the, the politics out of them, is about making them not fun or, 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 or whatever. And I think we have to push back against that to say that actually a critique of video games from the left isn't about making games not fun, but it's about thinking of a diversity of different roles and characters and play styles and all manner of things that could be included in it. And to think about what a positive critique of video games looks like. To think about why the games that sell do sell and to think about what other kinds of alternative games could emerge. Um, and I'm, maybe this is something we can touch on in the discussion, thinking about the role of politics within video games or political video games. We've mentioned the Corbyn uh, game while we were warming up. But what I want to end on uh, is to say that much like when the assassins in Assassin's Creed uh, finish uh, stealing their factory reports, I think there's two something that we can learn from that experience. With, at the end of that mission, it ends with follow marks, and I think that's something we should do too. Yeah. <laughs>